You're listening to The Dworkin Report. I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. Today on the show, we have David Priest, an author, Ph.D., distinguished former CIA officer who served under administrations for both parties. And while in government service, he spent a year giving then-FBI Director Robert Mueller his daily intelligence briefings. Now, David Priest returns to The Dworkin Report to tell us all about his second solo book entitled How to Get Rid of a President where he outlines the history of movements to remove an American chief executive from his own academic and historically comprehensive point of view. It's a timely book because of the times we live in, but with David's customary attention to detail, he doesn't just write about the successful attempts to remove a president, but also the failed ones as well. It is the failed attempts which are more instructive in the sense that they provide handy lessons on what not to do in American government and how not to remove a president. Before we go further, note that David's book is comprehensive and our discussions touch upon the worst way Americans have tried to remove presidents, but we absolutely do not advocate anything of the sort. Let me stress, we only advocate political solutions and following the Constitution. And David Priest will lead us through the history of attempts at presidential removal from the 19th century to present, including Lincoln, Kennedy, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and Nixon. Our country is at a crossroads today, standing astride a major constitutional crisis as the president attacks the rule of law, the press, the intelligence community, our allies, and our country's position in the world from inside the Oval Office. Last week, a blue wave shifted the House majority back to Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi. Certainly, many people are interested in removing a president, but not many people have taken the time to study the issue from all angles like David Priest. And that's why we're proud to introduce his book in this interview. So take a listen to my interview with David Priest. David Priest is back again to talk about his new book. David, how are you? I'm well. I somehow can't keep away, Scott. Yeah, it's it's the Dworkin Report, you know? It's so exciting to be on a podcast, uh, especially with everything going on uh, nowadays. Now, can you remind our, our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, your background? Sure, yeah. I uh, got a PhD in political science, and that's relevant for the, the new book I have coming out. But I ended up working for the government for years, went to the CIA, was an analyst, a manager, an intelligence briefer. Uh, most notably for a year, was going to see Bob Mueller every day. And I think that's what I talked to you last time about. Right. And uh, ended up leaving the government, working on different things for the past 15 years or so, but started writing books. And the first book was about the history of presidential intelligence, meaning the actual intelligence report, not the brain power of the president. And then the new book is on how presidents leave office. And that's going back to my political science roots to look at wait a minute, how, how did we keep this system for over 200 years, despite having some really god-awful presidents? How, how did we get rid of the bad ones? And what might that tell us about what's going to happen in the near future? So the book is How to Get Rid of a President. How, now, why did you decide to um, write this? What sparked your, you know, where, where you were like, I need to, I need to write this book. This is what, this is what's next for me. We spend a lot of time and a lot of energy, you know this better than anyone, focusing on elections, on how do we get a president into office. And then we spend a lot of time and attention on serving that president 
when he's in office and what institutions and norms are there to make sure that we run the government as efficiently as possible while doing as little damage as possible. So that's all been covered a lot. What surprised me, especially as the 2016 election was kicking in and then the election happened, is suddenly people were throwing around terms like impeachment and disability and sabotage and all these things having to do with removing a president formally or removing a president in place by undermining him. But I found there was a lot less of the the core understanding about what all that's about. People are just throwing it out there like, well, we'll just impeach him tomorrow. And I thought there's got to be more to that. So I dug in, started doing research right away, talked to a bunch of no kidding constitutional experts, uh, historians from the you know 19th century to help me understand the cases there. Talked to people like John Dean, Richard Nixon's former counsel during the Watergate uh, issues and Fred Fielding, another former counsel to the White House. And I started to get all of the stories about how have people removed presidents or tried to remove presidents in our history? And what can we learn from that? Because, damn it, I knew it was going to be relevant in this administration. At a minimum, there would be people calling for this president to be ejected from office. And I, I thought it would be more likely than not that some of those things would actually come into being. And in fact, some of them have, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. Is there a president that was removed uh, previously that you would compare Trump's situation to? There are a few. Uh, quickly, we'll hit a few. Andrew Johnson, who became president when Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, that's one way of removing a president, by the way, that I address in the book because it's happened. But I rule it out in terms of prescription, because once one person decides they know better than 300 million people what's good for the country, uh, it's chaos. And our system has worked because that's just beyond the pale. And even political opponents of Lincoln weren't really cheering for Booth. And political opponents of Kennedy weren't canonizing Lee Harvey Oswald. So assassination is out. But because there was the assassination, Andrew Johnson became president. And he was he was an asshat. I mean, he was all kinds of trouble. He was subverting the attempts to keep the newly freed slaves free. He was going against congressional law. He, he was doing all kinds of things that were bad. And Congress really boxed him in. They started passing laws that, in a sense, usurped some of the president's power. Now, we haven't seen Congress now doing that. That's one thing that you would expect through checks and balances, but we haven't seen. But what Congress ended up doing is they impeached the guy and they came one vote short of removing him from office. Another one is Richard Nixon, who I make the case he was removed by impeachment. Our history books tell us he resigned. And yeah, technically that's true. But he would not have done that if he was not facing nearly certain impeachment. But what was Nixon impeached for, essentially? He got through the Judiciary Committee. But what would he have been impeached and ultimately removed for? It was for things like abuse of power and obstruction of justice, which are the very things that appear to be under investigation now. So there's a clear parallel there for what's happening today. Why do you think this Congress doesn't move at all, you know, to, to check his powers? Yeah, the simple answer, and I think it has a lot of truth to it, is that party or perceived party is is trumping constitutional checks and balances. And this isn't new. It's happened before. Before Nixon lost faith among the party faithful, before the impeachment resolution looked certain, even among Republicans, people were saying just months before that, well, the Republicans are going to stick by Nixon no matter what. There's no way he can be removed from office. But then once the tide turns, people say, well, of course, it was inevitable. So it's one of those things that looks 
like it is here and forever, but it, it may not be. The one thing I haven't looked at in great depth is how much the party affiliations, the way that primaries have evolved, has ossified the party so much that it's easy for people who even philosophically disagree with the president, and there's many of them on Capitol Hill, how they find it very hard or almost impossible if they want to get reelected to go against the president of their own party. This is not unusual. Presidents usually line up the people in their party across uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. But in the past, there have been many times where people have gone against the president of their own party, and we're just barely seeing that in this time. To me, that's the thing that's going to be interesting to watch because there probably will be a tipping point where something that happens, maybe it's the result of the Mueller investigation, maybe it's evidence of obstruction of justice beyond what we've seen in public view already, but something is going to have people like maybe Mitt Romney coming into the Senate and maybe some others saying, you know what, I'm a Republican, but he hijacked the party. He ain't one of us. And we don't need to stand by him just because he has that next to his name. Now we need to do what's right for the country. This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by resistors like you. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. And if uh, Mueller finds crimes, you think he'll be able to relay that to Congress and the American people very clearly? Well, that's a tough question, isn't it? Because reading the, the way that the special counsel regulations are set up, uh, there is no requirement for a public report and, in fact, no mechanism directly for doing so. So it's going to be one of those things where it's got to be the Department of Justice deciding to put it out there or Congress bringing Mueller to the Hill and having him testify. There's nothing prohibiting them from doing that. There are many ways by which the information Mueller finds can be made public. One way is through the speaking indictments that he's been dropping. He's put so much information out there. As a former intelligence officer, I'm amazed the level of detail that he put into some of those indictments against the, uh, the Russians in particular. That's a way that he could get a lot of information out there. It's not a formal written report like a Ken Starr report. That ain't happening. But it could be a de facto report by putting so much into indictments that the case is laid out clearly. So uh, do you think that Trump can get indicted? Mm. Legally, I, I still think that there's mixed view on this, that some people say no, some people say yes. Department of Justice guidance appears right now to be that the president can't be indicted. What's interesting is looking at the Watergate roadmap that was recently released by the National Archives, which was Leon Jaworski's plan going forward, the information he sent to Congress. He did not send a long narrative. He didn't send a 400-page report with paragraphs and chapter headings. It was essentially a list of evidence with brief remarks about what it led to and what it meant. But in there, it became clear that they were looking to indict President Nixon. So there is a precedent for an indictment of a president, but that is a road we haven't gone down for good reason. That that opens up a whole bunch of problems moving forward just in terms of governance. While the president is under indictment, is does, does he still exercise the powers of the, the government? And if so, how do you execute the law? We've always relied on the fact that at a certain point, a certain amount of 
public shaming will drive either a president to resign or another chapter in my new book is about parties that reject their own candidates for re-election. That at a certain point, the public shaming means that the party says to the president, yeah, we're done with you. Um, maybe we won't kick you out before the next election, but you sure as hell ain't getting our nomination again. There are many cases of presidents who sought renomination and were rejected by their own parties. We've assumed up till now that that shaming element works, but we're suddenly crashing on the rocks of what happens when you have a president who doesn't appear to feel shame. It's a disaster in the, in the making. Now I'm a little biased, um, but do, do you think that uh, based on what you've seen that Trump's committed crimes? I don't have enough evidence as, as a former analyst. For me, it's always about, you know, what do you know? What are your unknowns? And then what can you infer from both of those? And honestly, I don't have enough information. We, we have enough on the face of it to show with things like the Comey firing for no apparent reason other than the investigation, um, Jeff Sessions being fired if the only reason was because he had recused himself from the investigation and wasn't drawing it in and putting boundaries around it. You put that out there, that sure looks like obstruction of justice without even getting into details of specific crimes. In terms of the crimes, it's going to have to be what kind of information is there about what Donald Trump knew and when he knew it about what exactly the cooperation was with the Russians who were performing information warfare against the United States in 2016. We have it from the Russian side. We know what the Russians were doing. What we don't have is those specific links. Something like that could turn the tide. That could be where Republicans finally say, yeah, we, we can't stand for this anymore. But I'm not sure if we're going to get that, Scott. I just don't have that inside view of the investigation. Uh, somebody had mentioned me the other day, well, what if nothing else happens in regards to Mueller and he comes back and says, that's it? Is that a possibility here or is that impossible? Is there more to come for sure? Uh, it is possible. There's that Mueller is a by the book guy. I got to know him really well by working with him every morning. And he's not somebody who's pushing boundaries, who's stretching evidence and argumentation. If the case is there, I have faith that he's going to find it and he's going to report it out in the best possible way. If the case isn't there, he ain't going to stretch to make the case. So we may be where we were, honestly, back in June 2015. I, I included in, in my new book the story that uh, John Lovett wrote an article in The Atlantic way back then, June of 2015, talking about a possible Trump presidency, which was considered a virtual impossibility at that time. And I remember that Lovett wrote, obviously, everyone knew he could never actually get anywhere once the votes were cast. And he couldn't win. He was too dangerous to win. To win would be too dangerous. It just couldn't happen because it couldn't happen. And then just like that, did. The, the good part about this article, the thing that had captured me at the time, was then he wrote this future history, if you will, about what would happen after Trump's uh, election and inauguration. And what happened in his story was how the rest of the government kicked in to high gear to put obstacles in the way of his looming violations of longstanding norms about the presidency with overwhelming bipartisan support and a nod from the chief justice of the Supreme Court saying, yeah, we will uphold any laws you pass that restrict the powers of the presidency. Lovett correctly foresaw that back in 2015, that Trump was unfit for the presidency in some fundamental ways. And he got that right. He got the election right. 
But then what he got wrong was this belief that there would be this knee-jerk reaction from the other branches of government to say, yeah, he is, he is historically bad. We need to restrain him. We haven't seen that at all. Instead, we've seen legislators just shrugging, appearing to value the perceived benefits of acquiescence over the constitutional role of checks and balances. What it will take to turn that tide? Yeah, it might be a no-kidding actual crime. Even then, I'm not so sure. Even with Nixon, even with the tapes coming out from Watergate, basically listening to him obstruct justice, there were still some Republicans who said, yeah, we don't know if he should be kicked out for this. This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. I'm talking to David Priest about how to get rid of a president, his new book. Um, so the key question here is, how do we get rid of this president? Well, the methods that I go through in the book, some of them apply, some of them don't, and some of them actually are happening right now. Quickly, the main way the founders wanted to get rid of a president was through the next election. Uh, they considered not doing this at all. The founders considered having a president for life that could be removed only for bad behavior as determined by the Congress. Wiser heads prevailed. They also considered long terms like 10 or 12 years. They quickly dismissed those and they settled on four years. So the idea back then was four years is a long time, but it ain't so long that a president can harm the fabric of the republic. Now, in today's era, four years, you can do a whole lot more in that time frame with the imperial presidency powers behind you. But still, voting the president out is option number one, and that, of course, would come to 2020. But before then, you can also remove a president by having the party reject the candidate and say, we're done with you. And that's happened many times. You can have a removal in place, if you will. That is, the president is still holding power, but some of those powers have been cut back. Some of the stories I tell in the book, some of the best ones are about this, where Andrew Johnson was basically put under a law that said, you can't get rid of any cabinet official without the approval of the Senate, essentially restricting his ability to control his own government. Richard Nixon, he had his own chief of staff and national security advisor take away some of the powers of the presidency by not following his orders and rejecting them, or by doing things without checking with him that were rightfully the president's powers. That's the one that appears to be going on now. I don't know if you remember, but back in October, the New York Times ran the op-ed by Anonymous, some senior official we still don't know the identity of, who said, yeah, we're, we're deflecting the misguided impulses of this president. Don't worry. We're not letting him get away with the stuff he's trying to do. And then Bob Woodward wrote in fear that people like Gary Cohn had been taking president's papers off of his desk so he couldn't sign things that he wanted to. That's basically undermining the president from within. That's a removal in place in much the same way that political opponents often try to do. In this case, it's people in his own administration. A um, couple of other methods that are out there. Of course, I mentioned assassination, which we don't recommend, but it has happened. People have chosen to take the president out by force, which is never a good option. Sometimes you can just wait for the president to die. Um, this happened with William Henry Harrison. He came in in 1840 as the oldest president yet. And he was dead within a month or so. Uh, that's one strategy, not one you want to base your political hopes on, because that's not something that you can always count on. You can also 
have the president removed through the constitutional means. And those are the ones that most people end up focusing on. One of those is declaring the president unable to serve, using the 25th Amendment to remove the president because of an inability to do the job. Originally envisioned as a reaction to a coma or some other situation like that, and it's only been applied voluntarily where the president has said, I'm going into surgery for a few hours, so I grant the powers temporarily to the vice president. That's happened a few times. But we have yet to activate Section 4 of the amendment, which is where the vice president and the majority of the cabinet say, yeah, he's not able to do this job. We are taking over. And it's very unlikely that a vice president would ever do that because it sure looks like a coup if the president doesn't want it to happen. And then, of course, impeachment, which is the constitutional method for dealing with an unfit president. You actually can remove him if he's doing damage to the constitutional order. Got to say, of all of those methods, we seem to have someone undermining the president that is trying to remove them in place, which is fraught with ethical difficulties in itself. You've got impeachment on the table. You've already got some newly elected representatives who are likely to put impeachment resolutions out there, even if Speaker Pelosi, if it's her, doesn't want to bring them to the floor yet. Nixon had dozens of impeachment resolutions put out there during Watergate that were just shunted off to the Judiciary Committee and ignored because the political time wasn't right. You may also get more calls for a declaration of disability. There's no means for doing that other than it initiating with Vice President Pence and the cabinet, unless Congress designates another body to work with Pence, but it's got to be Pence. And I don't know what you've seen, but I have not seen anything from Mike Pence indicating that he's likely to usurp the president in that way. That basically puts us, unless something changes, that puts us to the original method of voting the president out. That is the way the founders intended to get rid of a bad president. We'd be looking at 2020. That is our best option as of right now, you know, removing Mueller from the equation. But we should we should prepare for Trump being on the ballot in 2020. Honestly, I think all of those are on the table. Uh, I don't want to believe that taking him out by force is on the table. So I'll take that one off. But is it possible that some of the things he will do will so inflame his own uh, hijacked Republicans that, that they will not renominate him? I think that's highly unlikely right now based on what I've seen, but it, but it's possible uh, given his uh, unpredictable nature. Is he going to be removed in place further by opponents or subordinates? I mean, remember, with Democratic control of the House of Representatives, there's a whole lot of things you can do to box in the president and to make life difficult. I'm thinking here, even though it was the Senate, not the House, think of what happened to Merrick Garland. The president had the right to nominate a justice. that He did. And it was almost 300 days without even a hearing, which goes against the historical norm. So that could happen more. It's possible that there could be an attempt to declare him disabled, especially if there's more signs that he's unable to distinguish between truth and untruth in a way that points to psychological issues more than just uh, political issues. And then finally, impeachment. Um, I still think it's more likely than not that there will be an impeachment resolution, perhaps prompted by something that comes out of the special counsel investigation. Um, hard to say where that will go. It's hard to see the math in the Senate unless something changes among Republicans, making it worthwhile to do so. But some of the constitutional scholars I talked to pointed out having an impeachment of the president in the House of Representatives is not a failure if the Senate doesn't convict. The founders meant for an impeachment to basically be a slap across the face and a warning saying, you can't do stuff like that again, and we are going to box you in through other means. 
just because he's not removed from office doesn't mean that the representatives shouldn't try to do the impeachment. That's how it's been viewed since the Bill Clinton era. But it really shouldn't be that way. Impeachment in itself is a punishment. How do you think this all will end up? I'd like to say, well, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I, I'm I'm inherently an optimist because I choose to be. I think that I mean reading some of these stories. I don't know about you, Scott, but I, I know I took U.S. government classes in school growing up, but I don't remember even the names of all of the 19th century presidents and vice presidents, much less the stories of how they fought with Congress and how the people opposed them. Doing the research for this book, I found that we've gone through hell a few times. I mean, obviously the Civil War stands out. That was pretty bad. But the time after the Civil War was just as dangerous for our republic. In 1876, we almost had another civil war because of an election where somebody won the popular vote and then lost the electoral vote, um, where there appeared to be a great deal of of fraud and uh, illicit activity going on to make that happen. We've had presidents who came into power because of the assassination or death of their predecessor who were not intended to be president because the vice president was never really seen back then the way it is now as somebody who should be fully capable of taking over the reins of power. We've been through all of those and we've survived. And in fact, we've thrived as a country getting through that. So I've got to be optimistic that this is going to end up well. But the phrase is, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. And it sure seems like it's dark right now. You just got to keep faith that the system is worth keeping and we shouldn't undermine the system itself in an attempt to get rid of something that we think doesn't fit the system. Talking to David Priest about his book, How to Get Rid of a President. Um, Where can people buy the book and uh, where can they follow you online? They can buy the book anywhere fine books are sold and maybe some places that crappy books are sold. I don't know. (laughs) But it's, it's, it's up on Amazon now. It is available for shipping and we've got book events coming up. Uh, up and down the East Coast the week of November 12th. We do a Southern Swing in early December and then the West Coast in early January. All that information you can see on my Twitter feed, at David Priest. That's uh, David P-R-I-E-S-S. And I'll be putting out other information uh, about the book. Um, Hopefully a bunch of people come out to the bookstores because this is really a a chance to dialogue using history as a dialogue about where do we want to go as a country and how do we want to get there. And so I welcome people to come out to all the book events they can and uh, have a conversation about this. I think that sounds great. And we'll make sure to share all those links as well and and also his schedule, uh, your schedule that's coming up. No, I appreciate it and appreciate all your hard work on this book. It's just the timing is impeccable of it, obviously, and uh, the interest in it, I'm sure, will be will be high. So I I really appreciate you taking the time again to to talk to me. And and, uh, obviously, we'll probably be talking again soon uh, to talk about what we will. Yeah. So there, there may be some updates to go over. Is there anything else you want to want to tell people to end on? I, I, I do hope people get the book. I do hope people enjoy the book. Even even if you don't, please spend a little bit of time looking at the history of what we've done before, because you don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past. If you're going to make a mistake, make it a brand new one to learn from. But please learn from other people's mistakes. And this book is full of short vignettes Uh, and short stories about how people tried to remove presidents and were successful or not. And and we can learn from that either way that you want to go in the future. David Priest, thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. Thanks again to David Priest for taking the time to join us. 
Thanks to Grant Stern, my producer. You can check out our website at dworkinreport.com where we have dozens of interviews that you can uh, take a listen to. I highly recommend all of them, obviously. Lots of great ones recently. Lots of great ones. And thanks again to everyone for all of their support and everything they did to get out the vote. You know, I appreciate all the hard work everyone's done. Let's keep on pushing forward and doing what we can to protect our future. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>